Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. So we are concluding our series today called Stand as we come to the end of our study of the book of Daniel. And I have been wanted to do this study because I wanted to prepare you uh, for the oncoming onslaught that I believe will come upon us in the West as we continue to go along. And I wanted to actually form you into strong disciples of Jesus who are able to stand. So earlier in the year, we preached through the book of First Peter, and then we preached through the book of Daniel, because Daniel lived also at a difficult time when it was difficult to be a part of the people of God, and yet he took his stand. And so the question that I've been seeking to answer as we've been studying this book is we've been seeking to answer this question, how do we thrive and not just survive during our time of exile? And we've said that the book of Daniel is divided into two sections, chapters 1 to 6, and these chapters talk about how to take your stand. And so they talk about how to take your stand, and in chapter 1, we see that uh, Daniel is deported, and he stands out from the culture. Rather than um, just going along with eating the food from the king's table, he takes a stand and he stands out. Then we see in chapter 2 that King Nebuchadnezzar, he has this troubling dream. And his dream is so troubling that, the, um, that he says to all of the wise men that they need to interpret the dream and the interpretation of the dream. And when they can't, he is going to put them to death. But Daniel stands up and in faith, he goes to God and God gives him the dream and its interpretation. Then as we come into Daniel chapter 3, we see Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They will not bow down before Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And so they stand under fire. They demonstrate courageous faith and they will not bow down to idolatry. And then we come to chapter 4. And we see in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar in pride, he, he, he exalts himself, but God stands against him because God stands against the proud. And then in chapter 6, we saw that the kingdom has now changed from Nebuchadnezzar to his son Belshazzar. And now his son Belshazzar is there and the enemy is right at the gate, but, but he is partying. And so Daniel stands in faith and finally this section ends with Daniel in the lion's den, standing up for his convictions. His enemies come against him, but the only thing that they have against him is that he is a man who will pray. And so he is a person of conviction. So how do we take our stand in a hostile culture? Well, we stand out. We don't want to be like the rest of the culture. We stand up in faith. We stand, we stand under fire, even if it costs us. We stand against, we are people who, who, who are humble and humble ourselves. We stand in faith and we stand strong and refuse to compromise. But then we've seen as we've studied the book of Daniel that the next section of the book of Daniel from chapter 7 to chapter 12 is a prophetic section. And in chapter 7 you have four beasts and the Ancient of Days and those four beasts that, that appear to Daniel are the four kingdoms that will come. And the final one has this little horn who will be the Antichrist. 
But in the end, he will be destroyed by the Son of Man. And the Ancient of Days will pass over the kingdom to the Son of Man. And the kingdom of this world will become his kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. And then in chapter 8, we have the vision of the ram and the goat, which is the vision of um, the ram stands for Persia and the goat stands for Greece. And you'll remember that coming out of the goat's horn, even though his horn was broken off, was four horns and then a little horn. And that little horn was Antiochus Epiphanes, who in history in 167 BC went into Jerusalem and desecrated the temple and sacrificed a pig in the temple on the altar and set up a pagan idol in the altar, desecrating the temple. But the Maccabees came against him and he died by no human hand. And so that's the vision of the ram and the goat. And then we come to chapter 9 and we have Daniel's 70 weeks, which we're going to be looking at this morning. And then we come to chapter 10. And in chapter 10, we have this war in the heavenlies that Pastor Jeff talked about last week, that while there's stuff happening on earth, there is this warfare going on in the heavenlies. And then in chapter 11, we have this period of silence where we have the next 400 years spelt out. And we're going to be looking at that today. And then finally, chapter 12, we have the consummation of all things. So Daniel is split into these two parts, these narratives which teach us how to take our stand and these prophecies which teach us that God controls history. So how do you take your stand? How do you thrive and not just survive? Well, we thrive and not just survive by taking our stand now, no matter the cost, because God will ultimately win in the end. This is the message of Daniel. Take your stand now. Stand out. Stand up. Stand in faith. Stand courageous in the midst of the fire. Stand strong. Refuse to compromise. Because ultimately, God will win in the end. But how can we be confident that God will win in the end. How can we be confident that God will actually win in the end? Well, that's what I want to look at today. I want to go back and I want to study Daniel's 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9. Then I want to move forward and quickly study Daniel chapter 11 and then finish by studying Daniel chapter 12 to finish off the book of Daniel for us this morning. So let's turn in our Bibles now to the 70 weeks of Daniel, as mentioned in Daniel chapter 9. Now, as we study this, we need to understand that this is a very difficult part of the Scripture to interpret. And as, as, uh, as Joyce Baldwin once said, the last four verses of Daniel 9 present the most difficult text in the book. Or as Steve Miller said, he said that uh, the... Um, let me see if I can get it. He said that Daniel 9 are four of the most controversial verses in the Bible. So as we come to this, I know that you might have a different interpretation to me about this passage. But I hope that as we study it together, we'll see that the main point we can agree on of what this passage is actually teaching. But it's a really fascinating passage, Daniel chapter 9 and the 70 weeks of Daniel. Remember, as we come into Daniel chapter 9, that Daniel is in Persia and he is studying the, book of, of, um, he's studying the book of Jeremiah and he realizes that Jeremiah said that they would be in exile for 70 years and he counts up the years and he realizes that the exile is coming to a conclusion. So he starts to pray and he starts to seek God and he starts to confess the sins of his people. 
And then God sends the angel Gabriel, and Gabriel says that Daniel is beloved. And then the angel Gabriel tells him this in verse 24. The angel Gabriel says this, verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Notice that, that these 70 weeks are for the people of Israel, your people, and for the holy city, the city of Jerusalem. And what are they for? To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, to to seal up all of the vision and prophecy of, of the world, and to anoint a most holy place. So notice what these These 70 weeks are for. These 70 weeks are going to atone for sin and bring in everlasting righteousness. In other words, this allotted time is going to bring about the kingdom of God. Now, 70 weeks, what does that refer to? What are these 70 weeks? Well, in Hebrew, it's quite literally 70 lots of seven, seven periods of seven. And I don't think it's too big a leap when you compare how seven is used in the rest of the scriptures to say that these 70 weeks are actually 70, um, year, uh, the, the seven refers to years. So this is 70 times seven years. So 490 years. So 490 years have been decreed for the end of the people of Israel to make atonement for sin and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now we go on and then we read this in the next verse, in verse 25. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So when does this 490 years begin? Well, it begins from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. That's when this time period of this this 490 years begins. So when was this word to restore and build Jerusalem? Well, there were actually four decrees to actually build Jerusalem. Uh, Cyrus in 537 Uh, As mentioned in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, he decreed that the people of Israel could go back and could rebuild the temple. Darius also made such a decree in Ezra chapter 6. Artaxerxes made a decree in 458 BC, as, as said in Ezra 7. And Artaxerxes again in 445 BC, as recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2. When Nehemiah came to him, he said he made a decree that that, he, that the people could go back and they could rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So which one of these decrees is it? Well, if you observe the verse very carefully, it says that it was a decree not to actually rebuild the temple, but actually to rebuild the city and the walls. So I say that it's that fourth one, the decree of Artaxerxes, as mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 2. So get this, let's, let's just look back at that. Um, let's just go to the next verse. If you want to just go to the next verse for me, brother. This thing isn't working right. So know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince. So from that commandment to anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with the squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. So the, the city of Jerusalem will be built again. So we have seven weeks plus 62 weeks. 
When you add that together, what do you get? 7 plus 62, how many is that? 69. So you get 69 sevens or 483 years. So come with me on this one, all right? This is really significant. So from the commandment to restore Jerusalem, there's going to be 69 weeks or 483 years until the anointed one, the prince, will come. And as we said, we know that this commandment to restore Jerusalem was by Artaxerxes in uh, uh, March 14th, 445 BC. Now, if you take 483 years and you divide that into days, given that a year is 400 and, uh, 360 days in the ancient world, you come out with 1,700... Let me just get it so I can say it. Nick, can you do the, do the thing for me, bro? 173,880 days. So from the commandment to restore Jerusalem until the anointed one is 173,880 days. Now, if you plot that forward, what date do you come to? This is really, really interesting. The date you come to is the triumphal entry on April 6, 32 AD, to the exact day. This is fascinating. Remember, throughout Jesus' ministry, he would say that my hour has not yet come. But on that day, on the triumphal entry, as he came into Jerusalem, he allowed them to proclaim him as king in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse 9. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Isn't this fascinating? To the exact day, Jesus' triumphal entry was predicted to Daniel. But it's even greater than that. It goes on to say in the next verse, and after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. What happened to Jesus next after the triumphal entry? One week later, he was crucified on the cross. He was cut off. You know, remember what it said the whole purpose of this time period was for? The whole purpose of this time period was for atone, to atone for sin. And on the cross, Jesus atoned for the sins of the world. He was cut off. So the triumphal entry of Jesus was predicted. The crucifixion of Jesus was predicted. But not only that, Daniel goes on to write this, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The people of the prince who is to come, I think is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7 and the Roman Empire, which is the last beast in Daniel chapter 7. And it's true that in AD 70, Titus came into Jerusalem and he destroyed the city and destroyed the temple exactly as this prophecy had predicted. Jesus had predicted this as well. He said, you see this temple? I tell you that no stone will be left in this temple. This temple is going to come down. And in AD 70, Emperor Ti or, or Prince Titus came into Jerusalem into Jerusalem, and he destroyed the temple. There is no temple in Jerusalem standing today because of this prophecy that happened right here in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. Isn't this fascinating? The triumphal entry of Jesus was predicted. His crucifixion was predicted. The destruction of the temple was predicted. This is amazing stuff. 
Now, then it goes on to say this at the end of the verse. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now, this tends to push this forward into the future, that there's going to be these wars and desolations that are going to come. You see, as you're reading this passage, there is this interval that occurs between verse 26 or verse 25 and verse 27. In verse 25, we have seven weeks and then 62 weeks, which is the 69 weeks, until the coming of the prince, the one who is cut off, and the destruction of the temple. See, I've just put that little diagram there. So the coming of Jesus and the destruction of the temple. But then in verse 27, we have the 70th week resumed. Resume. So there is this interval period, but then there is going to come, in verse 27, the 70th week is going to be picked up. And we read about this in verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant, that is a reference to the Antichrist. He will make a strong covenant with many for one week. How long is a week? Seven years. This is where we get the idea that the tribulation will last seven years. He will make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, I thought that we just read that the temple is going to be destroyed. And yet, in this verse, it says that he's going to put an end to actually uh, offering and sacrifice. So obviously, in the future, there is going to be a temple again in this future tribulation period. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, we read about in, in Daniel 8 about how um, Antiochus Epiphanes, he desecrated the temple. But he was just a type of the one who is to come, the Antichrist, who will desecrate the temple at the middle of the tribulation. And so what we have is we have this idea here, that there is going to be this 70th week of Daniel, this seven-year tribulation. At the beginning... The Antichrist will make a covenant with many. There will be this world leader who comes about, who promises peace. And the nations are sucked in. And they actually go along with him as he promises peace to the nations. And the whole world thinks that peace has come on earth. But then in the middle of the tribulation, he will turn. And he will turn against Jerusalem and against the nation of Israel in particular, he will desecrate the temple. He will put an end to sacrifice. And for the last three and a half years, there will be a great tribulation until Jesus returns right at the end and puts an end to it all. So do you see that this is predicting God's future plan for the nation of Israel? It predicted the coming of Jesus with the triumphal entry. It predicts his crucifixion. It predicted the the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and it's pushing forward to this tribulation period that's going to come in the future. And so where do we fit in this? Well, we are actually now living in the interval period. We are living in this period between those 69 weeks and the 70th week when God is going to pick up his plan again with Israel and, and, and the tribulation period. Uh, Paul said this in Romans chapter 9, or this is actually 11, sorry, in Romans chapter 11, he said, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Some of you are getting nervous as I'm getting right close to the edge here. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A mystery in the Bible 
is something that is revealed in the New Testament that wasn't fully revealed in the Old Testament. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. In Romans 9 to 11, Paul is dealing with the fact that as he goes out and preaches the gospel, the people of Israel reject their Messiah, whereas the Gentiles accept it. And he says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We are living in a time period where the gospel is going out to the Gentiles. The gospel is going out to the world. Now, there is a remnant of people in Israel who have always believed in Messiah, Jesus. But the majority of the people in Israel reject Messiah. But look at what he says. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. What way, Paul? Well, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. At the end of that great tribulation period, Jesus is going to come in great glory. And the Bible says that they will look on the one whom they have pierced and they will turn to him. They will turn to their Messiah. Now you might say, what about Jesus? Does Jesus agree with this? Well, I think he does. Just turn in your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew's gospel to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and the Olivet Discourse. The beginning of this chapter, the disciples are enamored with the temple. But Jesus says to them, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That happened in AD 70. And as they sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them and said, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. We shouldn't be alarmed by all the wars that we read of and hear of. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and there will be kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. You know, when a woman is in labor and she has birth pains, eventually you know what's going to happen. What's going to happen? There's going to be a baby. This is the beginning of the end that's going to come. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. A perfect verse for prosperity gospel preachers to preach. Hey? Verse 19, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So verse 15, look at this. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet who? The prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand. If you see the abomination of desolation happening in the holy place, you know that you're in the tribulation. In fact, in verse 21, Jesus says, For there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and never will be. 
I think that this passage has a double referent. I think it does refer to the destruction of the temple in AD 70 under Titus, but it also pushes right forward to the end, the end when the Antichrist will come. And because of the language that Jesus uses here is large language that wasn't fulfilled at the time when Titus came. And so how does this actually help us know that God will ultimately win in the end? Well, as I said, you might disagree with my exegesis. I humbly place it before you. It is difficult stuff to interpret. But I think we can all agree on this point, that this helps us because God has a plan to bring about the salvation of his people, a plan that has been worked out in history. Jesus' triumphal entry was planned. The crucifixion was planned. The, the destruction of the temple is planned. And God will pick up his plan for Israel again in the future. You know, one of the things that I, I, I think about is that sort of us as evangelicals in our time nowadays, we sort of have developed a canon within the canon. And what I mean about that is everyone now is so gospel-centered that we just focus on the gospel and we just focus on like sanctification, but we don't read the other parts of the scripture. I love the gospel. I love being gospel-centered. I love talking about sanctification. You know that I do. But the Bible is full of prophecy. And it was given for our instruction. It was given to build us up in faith. And the gospel is not only that Jesus died and he rose again, but part of the good news is he is coming back again. That is part of the good news. And so part of the thing about this is, is that I know what it was like. I lived through the 80s, through the Cold War. And there was all this crazy prophecy stuff where people were claiming that it was, Jesus was going to come in 1988. And, you know, I freaked out in 1988, but he didn't come. And then people said it was going to be in 2000 that he would come. And there's all this name setting and all of that sort of craziness. I'm not into that at all. But I do believe that careful study of the scriptures will build your faith. Because let me tell you one of the problems with being a Westerner. The problem with being a Westerner is we have these ideas about God and then we have our life down here and our ideas of God are up there but there's this excluded middle in between with our God up here and, and our lives down here and we live just a very mechanical life down here and, and our faith in God sort of is good for our private quiet times and to make us feel good but it doesn't really intersect with our everyday living, our everyday life. When you go to other parts of the world, that's not how other people live. That's not how the people in Nepal live. One of the pastors that I talked to, he got a heart murmur. And I said, what are you doing to see to that? And he said, well, I don't have any money, so me and my wife are praying about it. He's seeking God over it. I was talking to RP, one of the, the director of BSL, and I said to RP, RP, is it safe for me to go to Nepal? You know, because they have anti-conversion laws. And he said, it's completely safe. We're not doing anything illegal. Don't worry. And then he said to me these words. He said, besides Timon, if it's God's will for you to be in prison, it doesn't matter how much people in Australia pray, you will be in prison. And he just looked with me with a big smile and he said, maybe God has a plan. <laughs> I'm like, I hope that's not the plan, but anyway... See, God has a plan to bring about the salvation of his people. You might disagree with my exegesis, but can you see 
that for Daniel, what the angel Gabriel was saying was God has decreed this. This is a plan that God has. And he will bring about the salvation of his people. Well, then let's go into Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. Now, just imagine that I went into the casino. I wouldn't do this, but just imagine that I did. And just say, for, just say we went into the casino together, and I said, guess what? Bet on black 26, because it's going to come up. And then, sure enough, I threw the, threw, the, threw the ball, and it landed on black 26. What would you think? You think that was, that was good luck, Timon. Well done. But let, let's say that for the next 10 goes, I then predicted what number would come up. What would you then think? What would you then think? You'd think I was cheating, wouldn't you? You'd think that it was fixed. But you realize, as we come into Daniel chapter 11, this is an amazing chapter because what's unpacked for us is the next 400 years of history in accurate detail. Such accurate detail that many liberal theologians and higher critics of the Bible say this can't be actually written by the Daniel who lived in the 6th century. This must be what they call a pseudopigrapha work. This must be someone who is writing after the fact, posing as the prophet Daniel, because this is so accurate. Like it's completely detailing kingdoms that are rising and falling. You see, first we have the Medo-Persians and we have Greece and it talks about Alexander the Great and those four generals that come out of him. And then we have this graphic description of Egypt and Syria. Um, two of the kingdoms of, of, uh, of, of Greece, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, the Ptolemies were in uh, Egypt and Seleucids were in the north, I think, in Syria. And it, it depicts all the battles that they have. And it's so, so detailed. We don't have enough time to study it today, but it's really, really detailed, detailed, accurate information as, as it worked out in history. And then we have, obviously, Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes, who is mentioned once again in, in verses 21 to 35, this one who came in AD uh, 67 and who desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. And we read in verse 31 these words. It reads that forces shall come from him, appear and profane the temple and the fortress, and they shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolation. And Antiochus came in and he sacrificed a pig and he set up an altar to an idol in the temple. And this happened exactly as, 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 as that unpacks. And so if you're a liberal person, you would say, well, this is someone writing history after the fact. But if you believe in a God who stands over history, then this is a beautiful, beautiful picture of God because how can we be confident that God will win in the end? Well, we can be confident that God will win in the end because God knows the future in advance. And he sovereignly reigns over it. He's reigning over every kingdom that comes and every kingdom that falls. So we don't have to be fearful and afraid when we hear about wars and we hear about all of that sort of stuff. We don't have to be fearful and afraid because God knows the future. And he reigns over it all. But then as we come into the last part of chapter 11, 
in verses 34 and verses 35, and you come to the end of it talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, in verse 36, we read this. And the king shall do as he wills. And this seems to be a different king than Antiochus Epiphanes. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. And nearly all the commentators agree that this is actually the Antichrist being spoken of here. The one who was spoken of in Daniel chapter 7. And so this is the Antichrist and it speaks about his battles that he is going to have. And then finally in verse 44, we read about the final battle. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with great fury to destroy and to devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. And that part is known as the Valley of Megiddo. And it's mentioned in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 16. John sees this. He says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, the, holy, the unholy trinity, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for a battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So there is going to be this final battle between the forces of evil and the forces of God. But notice what Daniel says. It says, yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. In Revelation chapter 19, Jesus comes back riding on a white horse and he defeats the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth. And puts an end to all evil. John would say that the spirit of Antichrist is in our world. And many Antichrists have come. But there will be an ultimate Antichrist who will be raised up at the end. Paul called him the man of lawlessness. But he will be defeated by Jesus at the end. And so how does this help us? To know that God will ultimately win in the end? Well it helps us because God will ultimately defeat Evil. Evil will not win. God will win in the end. Evil will be put down. Now, we come into chapter 12, and I want to just continue. I know it's been long, but this is good, good stuff. Let me just keep on reading. Daniel in chapter 12, he goes back, I think, and speaks about some of the events that are going to happen in the tribulation. He says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. It seems that Michael the archangel has a special role over the people of Israel. In Revelation chapter 12, we are told that while things are happening on earth in the tribulation, there is this war going on in heaven between Michael and the dragon. And then we read in Revelation 12 that the dragon is cast down to earth and that's when things get really bad really bad at the midpoint of the tribulation. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. And we read this in verse 1, and there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was uh, a nation till that time. And Jesus, as we saw, picked this up in Matthew chapter 24. Then in verse 2, we read this, or verse 1 at the end of verse 1, but at that time your people shall be delivered. 
everyone whose name is found written in the book. So even in the tribulation, there will be grace for those people who turn to God. Then in verse 2, we read this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. At the end of the tribulation, there will be a resurrection of those tribulational saints, and they will pass into the millennium, and they will reign with Christ. But all the wicked dead, they will come to life at the end of the millennium, at the great white throne judgment, when books are open and people's life is judged. And if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, then it says you will suffer the second death. You will be cast into the fires of hell. Then we read this in verse 3. And those who are wise, I love this verse, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. Don't you want to be one of those people? A person who is wise, a person who turns many to righteousness. Verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Hasn't this happened in the last 100 years? Travel has increased. Knowledge has increased. We shouldn't be surprised. This is actually predicted in the book of Daniel. But now I want to read together. Let's open up our Bibles and read the very last part of the book of Daniel, because this is the most important part. Verse 5 to the end of the chapter. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on the bank of the stream. Notice that. One standing with Daniel and one standing on the bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, he raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. When God finishes his dealings with Israel, God will finish his dealings in the end. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. Persevere, that's what that's saying. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Daniel sees this man over the stream, dressed in white linen. Who is this? I think this is none other than another vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. The one who stands above 
the flow of human history. All of human history stands before Jesus and he directs human history. Throughout the book of Daniel, I hope that more than anything else, the book of Daniel has not just given you a fascination for the future. I hope that it has caused you to worship the one who stands over all human history. He knows it all. He's said it all. It's all about him. Because all throughout the book of Daniel, we have seen Jesus. Jesus was there in the fiery furnace. Jesus was there in the lion's den. Jesus is the Son of Man to whom the Ancient of Days will give the everlasting kingdom. And now as we end the book of Daniel, open your eyes to see Jesus standing above human history. He stands above it all and directs it all. Young people, a couple years ago, this phrase came out, you don't want to be on the wrong side of human history. Have you heard that? Basically what that's saying is you don't want to be on the wrong side of public opinion or we're going to shame you. Let me tell you who you really don't want to be on the wrong side of. The one who stands above the flow of human history. The one who has set all the times, a time, a times and half a time. The, to, the one to whom all human history is flowing and the one to whom every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus stands over and directs the flow of human history. He stands over your life and deflects and, ref and directs the flow of your life. And I love the last verse of what the angel said to Daniel. He said to this old man, 90 years of age, <laughs> this is brilliant, go your way till the end and you shall rest. Prophecy is not given to scare us. When I was a kid, they used to try and scare us into the kingdom of God. I don't want to scare you into the kingdom of God. I want you to come to Jesus because he loves you. And you love him and you've sensed his love. And you recognize you're a sinner and you need his grace. But prophecy is written for us to rest. God has the future. Jesus is above the flow of human history. Nothing is a surprise. The change in the act of marriage is not a surprise to Jesus. It's nothing is a surprise. You're not on the wrong side of human history, young people, at university. Jesus stands above the flow of human history. So you can rest in his sovereignty. And I hope because you've made yourself white by bathing in his blood. I know that sounds a bit gross, but... What it means is you have accepted that you're a sinner and you need his forgiveness. Hopefully you will have your allotted place at the end of time. Because at the end, at the end, this is coming. Just as surely as Jesus came in the triumphal entry, 
Just as surely as Jesus was crucified and just as surely as the temple was destroyed, three events in the past, there will be a great tribulation period coming. And all those who have believed in Jesus will go to be with him before that happens. They will be raptured. I hope that you will be with us because you have trusted in him and put your faith in him and turn to him, the Lord of history. The Lord of history. Have you done that? Have you trusted in him? And are you walking with him, alert and awake to the times? Let me pray. We stand and we tremble before the word of God because it reveals the Son of God to us. And we thank you that we don't have to be afraid, but we can rest. Rest in the knowledge that if we are yours and belong to you, we have our allotted place in the end of time. So lift all of our eyes to see the divine Son of God in all of his power and glory and authority. Humble us this morning, Lord God, as we worship you and honor you and praise you. Oh, Father, we just come before you. Nothing in our hands we bring. There's no boasting, there's no pride here. There's only what has been done for us through the work of Christ, our Savior. Enlarge our vision and our awe of Jesus, we pray for his glory and honor's sake.